You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Now, Michael, finally, finally, after months of speculation and waiting and more speculation and more waiting, we have some official movement towards a resolution for the 2019-2020 NBA season. Uh, Over the weekend, the NBA announced in a press release that they had begun negotiations with uh, basically the Disney company to use uh, a campus uh, at Walt Disney World to host a bubble-like atmosphere, a campus if you would prefer to call it that, that would potentially take uh, take care of the upcoming uh, playoffs and maybe even the balance uh, or some portion uh, of the rest of the regular season. Now, there are many unanswered questions remaining. We don't know if that will be the only campus. We don't know how many teams will be invited to the campus. We don't know if they will uh, try to have all 30 teams go there so they can play out some of the remaining regular season games and get that uh, the local TV money. We don't know if they'll go straight to the playoffs to try to keep the, the risk down for all the teams who really aren't in the picture. Um, we don't know how strict the bubble will be. In other words, are players going to be able to come and go freely? Will families be allowed in. We don't really know yet either the specifics of the testing procedures. Uh, you know, obviously no one really wants to get that nasal swab test done every single day for three months straight. Um, but we do know uh, sort of timing. You know, they're aiming for a late July start to games, which means that when you're going through the ramp up process and quarantining people and everything else, that stuff's going to be happening here pretty soon, Michael, in a couple weeks, probably, uh, if they're going to hit that late July target date for games um, in September. We also know that if you need multiple months to play the playoffs, that means uh, things are going to end right around the end of September. And you're going to be heading into the offseason in the draft from there, which means you're most likely pushing back the start of next season uh, until December. So that's what we know. We finally know things, Michael. And I'm curious, from what I just laid out, is there anything that jumps out to you as sounding great or sounding positive, uh, things that capture your attention? And then what has you maybe a little bit nervous? What What's your big hang up at this point? Before we start, a uh, quick question for you. Have you had the full nasal swab coronavirus test, Ben? I have not. Um, thankfully, I've not had any symptoms whatsoever since the start. I've been under strict, strict quarantine, Michael. I would say that I'm down to like two or three social interactions <laughs> per week. Um, mm-hmm. If you're not counting me walking by people on the sidewalk, and look, I'm giving everybody big buffers, right? I'm giving lots of thumbs up, Michael, lots of head nods, but big buffers on all my walks. Uh, besides that, you know, I, I get to my laundromat every once in a while and I order food in. Um, you know, I, ha- I have to go to the bank once a month to, to deposit my rent check. But other than that, I am pretty locked down and safe. Have you had the nasal swab test? So, yes, I bring this up because upon reading uh, the first report of just all the different scenarios and permutations that would allow the season to come back, I saw the. The, the, the note that players were resistant to getting the test every day and how uncomfortable could it possibly be and 
So I had the test done, and I had uh, I, w- I went to uh, a local, I guess, medical center in, in Brooklyn to get the antibody test because my wife and I are taking a trip to, we're driving to Michigan in the coming days, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, obviously we don't know everything about COVID-19 so far, but if you have already had it, then it is uh, less likely that you are able to pass it on and get it again to other people. So I had the antibody test. I had the nasal swab test. And I just want to say that I have never had anything more painful done to me in my entire life than that swab going up my nose. So I just want to apologize to the players when I judged them when I, upon initially reading the report. I I could not even imagine getting that done ever okay. again in my whole life. So stop stop right there. How much would I need to pay you to have that <laughs> test done to you every single day for three months straight if you're in a, a playoff bubble and you're playing regular season games trying to proceed towards a title? Because the problem they have right now <laughs> is that the other testing methods are either not not very reliable, like the instant test machines have been having some issues, and then they really wanted to do a saliva swab test and people were pretty excited about it. But then I think there's been some more research and, and, and that people have sort of backed off that one as being like, you know, the, the, the Hail Mary kind of saving grace of everything. So if they are stuck with this nasal swab test, it's kind of the only thing that they have to have available uh, for the players. And even that one still takes a while to give you results. Um, what do you say, Michael? What dollar figure? Because obviously you survived it, right? So you could do it again if yeah. you needed to. You, you wouldn't want to. You would dread it every single day. How much money do I have to get you to do it every day? I mean, the millions that the players are losing by not playing is a pretty good incentive. I so I, I real quick, like just the the quick play by play. I I'm sitting on a, the, a chair in the 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 waiting room or whatever not the waiting room but the the room where i'm getting the test done and the doctor is like this is probably not going to be pleasant and i was like whatever how bad could it be she sticks it up my nose uh i am it is very very painful very uncomfortable and i thought i had a high pain tolerance before this experience and um she hands me a napkin because you involuntarily cry i guess and i so i started to cry and then she starts doing the blood work and she's talking to me and saying like we're trying to get the vein blah 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 and i'm not even able to focus on that at all because uh the pain in my face is still so great so like my eyes are watering tears are coming out of my face stop there if i gave you 10 free throws at that moment (laughs) how many could you hit no crowd because you're in an empty gym how many do you think you could have hit at that moment Three or four, I wow. would say. So you yeah. do have a pretty high pain tolerance. If you're crying and you're, uh, <laughs> and you're doubled over in pain and you're shooting 30%, you're almost as good as Andre Drummond. Right. But the funny part was I didn't even realize that I had blood work done until they pulled the needle out of my arm. I didn't. That's how painful it was in the face. So I just want to get this whole, this anecdote out of the way before we start talking about this whole the season coming back because I thought it was a kind of a funny story. No, it's, um, a, it's a great story. It's very informative. And look, bottom line is what percentage of NBA players or what percentage of society who hasn't had this test understands exactly what's involved with it, right? Like it all sounds well and good to bring the game back until you show up and you know, you're doing this every single day. And you're like, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. So that's going to require a real internal education campaign or it's going to require pulling whatever possible strings they can to get better tests uh, between now and late july and and frankly they're going to need the test before that because they're going to have players in group activities 
you know, uh, well before that late July timeline. So uh, to me, the testing thing remains a major challenge in terms of how they're going to execute it. But Michael, from the plan that's been laid out, what did right. you like? What's <laughs> what's got you nervous besides uh, the, the nasal swab? <laughs> I mean, at the center of this is just the fundamental fact that playing games is less safe than not playing games. And you can think of every precaution in the world and account for uh, anything going wrong as best you can. Um, But the fact remains that the NBA is trying to play basketball games in the middle of a global pandemic. And so I feel like that just needs to be said right off the top. Uh, I think... Well, especially because of the nature of the game, right? This idea that, hey, indoor activity is definitely higher risk than outdoor activity. Close contact activity is definitely worse than socially distanced activity. And look, Michael, you could have as much pace to space as you want. (laughs) It's not socially distanced, right? (laughs) I mean, this is not how it works. Exactly, yeah. You're not going to have guys, uh, and you're probably going to have to have them, whether it's training rooms or... Uh, locker rooms. I mean, you're going to have to change all aspects of that, but just even on the court, um, you know, playing, uh, you're obviously in close proximity. You're sweating on your on yourself, your opponents uh, on the ball. And the other big issue is that a lot of players or a lot of uh, people who get this um, virus are asymptomatic. So they just don't even know it. And, and the tests take a while sometimes to reveal it. So again, you're in a kind of a pressure cooker type environment to, to pass this thing on from one person to another. And that's essentially what happened where, you know, multiple players are all testing positive, uh, the teammates and opponents. I mean, that's not coincidental, right? Uh, you know, we, we haven't contact traced <laughs> all the Utah Jazz uh, situations all the way back to the beginning, right? But uh, it's it doesn't seem like it's a coincidence there. So this is pretty high-risk activity. And when you're laying out, you know, all the types of things that are going to be allowed to, to kind of uh, be done and reopened here across the country, Um, you know, this type of gathering indoors with lots of people in close proximity is one of the last things that is going to be allowed. Yeah. And I, I think, so just contextually, we should lay all that out for everyone, um, to kind of process, but not that they don't already know it, but I do like just the, the baseline of the, the plan where, you know, they're limiting travel. They're trying to have it in one location. We've known that, that would that would be what the league wants uh, for quite some time, but it's good to get kind of a, an official statement by the NBA about it. Um, and there's been just so many reports about the open-mindedness of the decision makers and how everyone is trying to be as flexible as possible to get it done. So again, like from the context where we already know that it is not the safest possible uh, thing to do to play basketball right now. Uh, the fact that they are trying to put it on in as safe, uh, in as safe as as a situation as possible is 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 good. And uh, so, from that perspective, I am for it and I like it. But yeah, let me it's hop still on there just, before sure. we get to the to the negatives. What I like is this idea of multiple stages. Right, you're going to have a quarantine period. You're going to you know you're you're giving yourself um, not only kind of smart medical way of laying things out where you're not just throwing everybody together from all over the country and saying, hey, here's the playoffs. You know, you're going to have individual teams meeting and then going through the quarantine process, you know, getting to that single site, probably quarantining again at that point. Uh, You're going to have hotels that are going to be relatively isolated and facilities that are relatively isolated from the rest of society, the rest of Disney World and everything else. So that makes a lot of sense. And these are the things all the way back in March we were saying that they were going to need to do um, you know, they're not quite out on a deserted island like we were imagining, Michael, but, you know, they've they've got this thing down pretty close. 
Um, so, you know, those things are positive and they, they do seem very logical. It sounds like this facility itself uh, has the ability to play multiple games simultaneously and has room for practice gyms. Um, so to me, th- it does sound pretty ideal. It sounds in some ways even better than Las Vegas, uh, just because, you know, in Vegas, the different facilities might be independently owned and, and who knows if you're going to be able to kind of lock them down to any other events. I mean, that would be kind of an open question too. So uh, they've made some real progress here. Uh, there's no doubt. So let me ask you though, what's your hangup? I mean, what, what has you nervous? I mean, what if someone gets sick? It's a really obvious question, but like, can you imagine having to deal with like the queasy platitudes where, you know, a player on the Milwaukee Bucks gets it and then it's like, oh, well, Brooke Lopez couldn't be here fighting beside us. So we're going to have to go out there and win the whole championship for him. Like, it's just like that, that type of scenario is just kind of like gross to think about, but it is one that I could see happening, which is just... It's not what you want. I mean, last week, Jared Dudley addressed the practical concerns surrounding, you know, the basic liberties that this bubble scenario sensibly strips from players. Uh, And I feel like, you know, a player leaves and uh, contracts the virus and then comes back and infects the team. Like, what happens? Do we just pause the playoffs or does that player get quarantined and hopefully not infect anyone else? And then you have to worry about the the elderly people who are involved, like uh, some of the coaches, some of the referees. Um, you know, if someone is critically affected by this and is actually hospitalized, does, does the whole thing go on pause or do we continue on? And uh, it's just that is the obvious, most pressing concern for me. Um, and I don't know how the league can just guarantee that that will not happen. The league can't. And Adam Silver has sort of communicated that to players, to, you know, basically, hey, guys, get comfortable with this idea that we're not going to be able to guarantee your safety if you still want to play great. But like, you know, there's just no way where we're going to be able to make this thing, you know, 100 percent safe. Um, you know, you, you can't make that promise up front. I guess what I like with the stages idea is it gives you off ramps, right? If something goes wrong in the more confined team by team settings early on in this process, it, it could give you the ability to kind of step back and scrap the whole thing. I mean, we've seen other leagues around the world kind of start uh, start and stop, right, when they're mm-hmm. trying to do these comeback plans. And that would be a horrible PR black eye of, oh, get everybody excited for these playoffs, and then something happens during one of the quarantines, and, oh, okay, now we can't do it. But I could guarantee you there is a much worse, very realistic black eye. Someone could die here, right? I mean, it's not just that they could go get sick and they're in the hospital. Like, this is a disease that kills. And most no, and of the players are younger and they're not uh, at super high risk because they're fit and they most likely don't have uh, some of the other issues that have been, uh, you know, they don't have obesity or, or diabetes or, you know, major breathing problems or anything like that. But certainly there's going to be people who are on that those travel teams who are older, who maybe are obese as coaches or, um, you know, have some other issues underlying that could present greater health challenges. And... So that that worst case scenario needs to be discussed. It can't be glossed over as, oh, this guy's just going to be in the hospital for three weeks or, oh, we're not going to hear from him for two weeks, sort of like, uh, you know, Donovan Mitchell or or Kevin Durant. And then all of a mm-hmm. sudden they come back and they're OK. Right. That's not how it goes every single time. No. And then also what you need to account for, which you can't, is, you know, what if uh, a star player's family member contracts COVID-19 who is not like in Orlando, who's just uh, in their home and wherever they may be, wherever they may live, and they die from it. Uh, and, and, you know, we're thinking about this. This is not like this is unprecedented. Carl Anthony Towns' mother passed away 
a couple months ago. So what if that happens? It's a, it's a terrible tragedy and a player just decides not to play or he's uncomfortable continuing on. Like that's another uh, roadblock that you would have to kind of hop over on the fly. And it's really, it, it's like really dark and depressing to even discuss this, but this is what you have to discuss if you want to play basketball games during a global pandemic. Oh, it's a great point. And that's, you know, it's part of the reason why I'm in favor of only taking the 16 playoff teams. I don't think any of the lottery teams should go. I 100%. Hate to, I hate to kind of hurt their feelings and send them home and, you know, just kind of dismissively say, oh, better luck next year. The fewer teams you're bringing, the less risk significantly, right? Because you just have fewer people to account for. You have fewer variables. And the idea that you're going to be playing meaningless end of season regular games in these kinds of conditions, to me, it's really rough. Like I can understand the appeal of the playoffs and like, you know, the, the playoff revenue that usually gets generated and everybody wants to crown a champion and there's the history factor at play. There's no history in, you know, Golden State Warriors versus Minnesota Timberwolves, right? Nothing. It just does not even matter, right? So I think from that standpoint, I would only bring the 16. Sounds like you're on board with that. Michael, given that they would all be at one location and so the travel mm-hmm. stuff doesn't matter, would you be in favor of a 1-16 to 16 regardless of conference playoff format? So you just rank the teams by record and, and uh, you know, try to juice up some more interesting first-round matchups? Or would you stick to the West versus East for tradition's sake um, rather than, you know, make this thing even weirder than it needs to be? This is really interesting. I don't, I don't know where I come down necessarily with whether or not they should reseed or whether or not they should. Because the, the, the number one reason why we haven't had just the basic 1 through 16 best regular season record postseason is because of travel, as you mentioned, and you know the possibility of the Portland Trailblazers having to play the Miami Heat or something like that. And that is obviously out the window now. But I do wonder, like, there's already going to be a, you know, we talked in p- previous episodes about how when you win a championship, you win a championship and nothing, no one can ever take that away from you. But this is such an extraordinary circumstance where there will be an undeniable asterisk on whoever wins the title in for the 2019-2020 season. And so you by changing sound, I mean, it, are you happy about that or you're just saying that's how it's going to be remembered? Well, unless the Boston Celtics win it all, then there's going to be just a humongous asterisk on whoever takes home the crown. And <laughs> what you what you have is like how 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 much more uh, how much do you want to deviate from the norm if you don't have to is basically what I'm trying to say because like right so you're, you're trying you ex- to you grow yeah if you grow the asterisk to a point and you blow yeah. it out where it's just like it, it overtakes the the actual gameplay in terms of just the conversation like i what are we even doing you know what i mean i got you you're in microsoft word right now and the asterisk is size 12 (laughs) font and what you're worried is if you change all these format and you do all these other different weird things and everyone's like what do you mean wait a minute orlando played the lakers like that makes no sense that all of a sudden that font size gets blown up to like 72 and it's like really glaring and it's kind of hanging over everything Mm -hmm. um that's a pretty compelling argument. I mean, I guess it comes down to how serious were they thinking about reseeding before all this, right? Because it's a very convenient way to like drop in a new playoff format, right? If this is how it's going to be going forward, it's like, oh, we're doing it as a test case, wink, wink. And then from every, you know, every year going forward, it's like, all right, now we've got a a reseeded playoffs, Mm -hmm. which was something that, you know, it's one of my hobby horses. I would love that. Uh, But I I don't know if we're going to get there. Um, So let me ask you, if you were a player right now, do you have enough information to decide whether you would play 
or sit home? And if not, what would be your sort of deal breaker information? Like what, what could convince you to go versus what would lead you to pull out? I mean, we haven't really heard of any players saying, you know, yet, oh, I'm not going. Um, that could happen. Uh, and it, what are those kinds of characteristics for you? There was a report over the past few days that kind of trickled out where Joe Ingles said that he was pondering retirement when uh, COVID-19 was kind of at its apex or nearing its apex. But he's since walked that back. Uh, those comments were made months ago. Um, and so that's really the only player I can think of who has said that they would not feel safe playing. Uh, I don't know how they feel. How some players feel privately. It seems that, uh, you know, on that call that a lot of the star- superstars were on, there was a lot of momentum to actually play and no one really wants to continue the suspension of the season for me if I was a player I mean yeah I would play (laughs) I mean I I know that the games are going to take place whether I do or not and so it it seems really trite but I'd I'd be letting my teammates down I'd be letting my organization down I'd be letting fans down and that alone would be an easy way to talk myself into it if I had any suspicion that I I wouldn't really want to or any drawbacks to competing like I I, it would be pretty easy for me also I I wonder what the financial uh, which you have to account for I wonder what the financial consequences would be if I chose not to not to play so are you going outside your apartment right now? Like, basically, are you wearing masks? I mean, how are you limiting uh, your travel and your movement? I mean, what's your daily life like right now? For me, Michael Pina in yeah. 2020? Um, I am wearing a mask at all times. I'm very, yeah, social distancing. I, I'm taking it very seriously is the short way to put it. Okay, so I guess my point here is, Michael, you sound pretty confident that you're ready to come back, but what if you had to get on a flight tomorrow? <laughs> Right. I mean, what if we're playing these games and and what if you're starting practices in three weeks? There's not going to be any mess. You're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to change everything about your current routine. You're going to be exposing yourself in ways that lots of other Americans aren't exposing themselves. Are you sure you're still on board for all these games or you're just going to feel the peer pressure and responsibility to do it? I would succumb to peer pressure. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Very interesting. Well, I know that the the next question you're going to ask me is what I would do as a reporter, as myself, just if I if I had the opportunity to cover it. And I think that that's obviously it's a different circumstance. Um, But I honestly think that if I had the chance, I would go cover it. And at this, I, I would feel very weird and I would feel uneasy about just being around people and writing about the outcomes of basketball games. But as a journalist, I would also, like looking back 20 years from now, I'd probably regret it if I if I didn't go because it's just, it's, it's because literally a once alive. in a, I'd be alive, <laughs> yes. But it's also like literally a once in a lifetime opportunity and a once in a lifetime experience to be in this like bubble in Orlando watch it would be very it would be weird but it would be totally unique and yes I hope I would survive the experience first and foremost but uh confident that I would it's something that I would probably uh want to do yeah it's really tricky man it's funny I've been weighing that question too like I've been I spent so much time in Vegas over the years covering summer leagues that if Vegas was the venue and I already would know, here's what hotel I could stay at so I don't have to go on an elevator, right? Mm-hmm. I, I know I could stay away from the crowds. 
I already know what restaurants I could order, get food from. I would have a, a level of comfort factor there that I don't think I would have because I went to Disney World once when I was a kid, but I never went to this ESPN compound that they're building and everything um, or that's been built that they're going to use. And so it would all be new and foreign to me. I feel like the anxiety level would be much higher because of that. Um, now, granted, we should have mentioned that the case counts in that area are pretty low, all things considered. So that's good um, for sure. I mean, it's not like you're dropping this thing in the middle of you know, Manhattan or Brooklyn, um, you know, where obviously Sweet. there's been a, yeah, well, no disrespect, but like, I think you guys are sort of known right now as kind of the, the epicenter of this, uh, of this virus in the country. So yeah. I just think that those just walking through the mental exercise of like, oh yeah, I'd be more open to it if it was Vegas than uh, Orlando leads me to believe that there are going to be some players who have hesitations here and then they're going to need to really feel reassured and, and comfortable. And, and maybe if you're going with your team, you do feel that, that level of, uh, you know, safety and security, which is sort of ironic because like, ultimately those are the people who are probably the most likely to actually get you sick because of the, the whole closed quarters thing. Um, you know, I, I think the other question for media members is, are you going to have access to anything, right? Or is it just going to be a televised post-game press conference? Obviously locker rooms are not going to be open. Um, you know, what's the, the journalistic benefit of being there in person other than the experience side, um, yeah. which, you know, you're going to be able to get that bubble experience in like 72 hours. And then now you've got two more months of playoffs to cover. Right. So um, I do think there's some trade-offs there, you know, potentially pros and cons of just staying home, sitting it out uh, and, you know, not, ex not increasing your risk versus, you know, going down there, you know, treating it like it's uh you know, the, the assignment of your lifetime only to find out that no, actually you're not getting within 200 feet of anybody. You're just sitting in the top of an empty gym watching these yeah. guys go five on five, just, you know, just all risk, no reward. <laughs> that's, that's not what you want. Um, this just, just bringing it back real quick to basketball for a second and, you know, talking about asterisks on what would, what would be different about this, this playoff setting as opposed to every single one in the, in the league's history. Uh, something I've thought about that is very obvious but is very weird is just the fact that there would be no home court advantage. And so the whole point of the seedings and the whole point of the regular season is to get home court advantage, to, to win more games than as many games as you can and, and get a seeding. And, and if hopefully you're in the top four and that you'll get uh, you know home court in the first round and that is ostensibly an advantage for you. But that just completely gets wiped away. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about like how you can give a team that had a better regular season some type of advantage over their opponent? Or is it just kind of like tough? No, yeah. You let them play the lower Eastern Conference teams, you know, who honestly don't even deserve to be in this thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, the home court advantage thing is a huge deal. I mean, right now we're supposed to be watching Lakers Clippers in L.A., right? And instead... If we're lucky, we get to watch Lakers Clippers, this brand new, amazing rivalry, first time they've ever played in the playoffs. Instead of seven games at Staples, it's going to be seven games in Orlando. I mean, in an empty gym like that is just rough from an experiential standpoint. I think the the bigger factor is how do you create a, a watchable television product in that environment, right? I've been surprised, like you know, they put the cardboard cutouts up in the soccer stands. Um, it looks better than empty seats, man. I know it's kind of phony, but like if you're just watching the game, you're used to it. Obviously, it's weird. Everybody's going to laugh about it. It does look better. Um, in terms of piping the noise in, I know there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, never pipe noise in, blah, blah, blah. 
I think they're better off doing that too. I mean, there's a lot of unnecessary noise. Yeah, guess what? That already happens. Right, in the in the NBA stadium experience. <laughs> so just try to make it as, as close as possible. I mean, you know, almost approach this like you're a, you know, a movie director on a limited budget, right? It's like, well, we don't have enough money for 20,000 extras. Well, do we have enough money for 20,000 cardboard heads? Let's do that, right? You know, like you have to kind of get creative here to make it as uh, as realistic as possible. So I would encourage them to do those kinds of things just for the, the TV audience, not even for the players, but just for the viewing audience at home. Because ultimately, you're going to need to keep people's attention on these games. The thing is, if, if you are going to run these playoffs, they have to be watchable. The whole reason why you're doing this is the television revenue, right? If your games are whack, right? If it's like Toronto versus Orlando in an empty gym and it looks like Summer League, no one's watching that and you're not getting your... Uh, uh, you're not getting your your revenue checks coming in like you would hope. So I, I think that is a really important key aspect. And that's actually one where I trust the people at ESPN, the NBA, and TNT to figure that part out because this is what they do, right? And they've been doing it for a long time. Um, all right, Michael, I think that we're ready to kind of maybe shift gears here. Uh, any final thoughts uh, about the NBA's bubble? I guess I should have asked you the most important question first. Are you excited about this? Are you like anxiously counting the days until we have this back i'll be honest as a guy who like lives and breathes basketball i was my first reaction was really the mixed feelings like is this a good idea this doesn't seem great like they have some major questions left to answer is it worth it how you know and maybe some of those mixed feelings will recede once uh, you know they clear things up like the formatting and the testing and, and maybe i'll feel more comfortable uh, a few weeks down the line but i was not like pumping my fist you know, like I just hit a game winner over Brian Russell uh, when they announced this over the weekend. I, I had more of a, a sensation of uneasiness. Um, yeah, I 100% am with you. I'm, I'm personally leaning a little more towards the cautious side and the, you know, do we really need this as a society side? And I just through the past, I don't even know, six, seven, eight weeks, whatever it's been, I've just not really even been that interested in updates and developments about the NBA season or professional sports in general and what leagues are doing. Like I don't, uh, maybe it is because of, of, of where I live and how severe I'm seeing it firsthand, but it, it's like, I, I just can't, I can't bring myself to caring all that much. And I think that that feeling has dissipated a little bit uh, as this whole this whole thing has kind of gone on and you're enduring it in real time but yeah I'm not I don't think anyone was was pumping their fist and I certainly was not was not either after the trip I drove my van back with all my equipment I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying when Eldon Kidd a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts 
or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck, so you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. All right, let's shift gears here. I hear what you're saying completely. Uh, we got some great questions from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Brandon from LA is already looking forward to that offseason, Michael. That might not come until October. He <laughs> writes, with all that's going on right now and the uncertainty around the salary cap this summer, is, it, is this the time for a no-name GM to become a household name or maybe for the next Tim Connolly to stand up? What if Rob Polinka has another monster summer? He could put himself on another level from a <laughs> reputation standpoint. Or can Bob Myers cement his Hall of Fame status? So uh, Brandon is tracking uh, the executives, like maybe some people would track the uh, the superstars. And I'm curious, when you're looking ahead to this summer, where it is going to be crazy, I mean, everybody's going to probably try to shed salary, and they might have to you know, change the luxury tax situation so that you know owners aren't you know completely you know, forced to pay just obscene bills with uh, the lack of revenue coming in and everything else. Um, is there a GM who you're willing to kind of call your shot and say, this guy's about to have a big summer? What do you think? I, man, I don't, I don't know because <clears throat> the, the, the rules of the CBA are just in flux so much that it's hard to look at someone's cap sheet now and see who has a, a major advantage and, knowing what players are going to do in free agency going forward in 2020 and 2021 and and just what the financial status is going to be of the league long term. But I have a really underrated, or I guess underrated isn't the right word, probably just super overlooked candidate here. And I picked him because no one even knows what he looks like. So I'm really going under the radar. But uh, Brian Wright, who is the general manager of the San Antonio Spurs, uh, I'm going with him just because I feel like the San Antonio Spurs are in this humongous state of transition. And this is an opportunity for him to make a name for himself. So he could completely blow up what is already, you know, a, a a middling, what has become a middling team. He could move LaMarcus Aldridge and figure out a way to to move on from DeMar DeRozan. Um, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the Brooklyn Nets and the Houston Rockets would probably have interest in Aldridge, I would think, maybe. Uh, so uh, that's just a name that I have uh, that I think would be interesting in terms of just kind of like the no-name general managers who are trying to uh, assert themselves because as cemented as Greg Popovich and R.C. Buford have been at the top of the San Antonio Spurs for so long, I, I wonder if someone like Brian Wright could come in and kind of uh, establish himself with a big move or two. I love that call. I mean, that's out of left field for you for sure, but they, are, they were already at that crossroads, right? And I think that the teams that were in the middle of transitions now kind of uh it's almost like a rocket booster to those transitions right because now you have like the perfect excuse if you want to strip this entire thing down you could be like sorry guys like tell your fans and this isn't a normal year we're dealing with covid we've got a plan for the next 10 years i mean you have pretty much cover to do almost anything that you want Mm -hmm. Uh, what about the knicks front office right 
I mean, weren't they positioning uh, potentially to, you know, have a new era? Are they going to gamble big on a superstar, maybe trade for somebody like Chris Paul? Uh, you know, they have flexibility maybe financially that a lot of um, organizations don't because remember they signed all those guys to one-year contracts last summer. Um, I mean, they also are potentially going to have a pretty good uh, draft pick, right? I mean, is there a scenario where the Knicks' new backcourt next year is Chris Paul and LaMelo Ball? Like, does that get you the Paul-Ball combo? What do you think? Like the perfect mentor for uh, a, a new uh, – you know, a new rising superstar level player, a guy who says he wants to be the GOAT in 15 years, Michael, what do you think? <laughs> uh, I think that as long as James Dolan is the owner, I just wonder what financial hit he has taken and what appetite he would have for absorbing Chris Paul's just monstrous contract going. I don't know how, how all of this has changed the calculus there, um, but that that's an well, interesting one. He did sell the uh, the forum in Inglewood, you know, some to Steve Ballmer for cash, basically. So if he can use That's that, a good sign. Yeah. if he uses that Inglewood <laughs> money to just like pay, you know, to as like a bridge loan to himself over the course of the pandemic. I mean, the other team really to watch, I think, is Houston, man. I mean, their owner was on a panel at the White House, essentially. Mm. I mean, requesting, begging, whatever word you want to use for some small business PPP money that he definitely did not qualify for. Um, you know, basically his hat's out um, in D.C., just kind of, you know, passing it around, hoping for a little bit of help. When you're an organization that has two players who are max, super max level guys in Westbrook and Harden, um, and, you know, you've been already embroiled in this whole China controversy and everything else going back to the Hong Kong situation, um, that could be, um, you know, kind of the flip side here. Maybe there could be a GM who makes his name by peeling off one of those stars from Houston or, you know, finds a way to, to get some get in on some of Houston's role players and, and put his team over the top. Just a couple situations to, uh, to keep your eye on. Did you have any others that you wanted to nominate? Yeah, I have a couple others just because, uh, you know, we you just talked about the opportunity to peel away as a superstar. I mean, Tommy Shepard with the Washington Wizards, Obviously, the the dance that that organization has been playing with Bradley Beal over the past 12 months or so, uh, if you were ever going to move him, I know he's been in the news with the Brooklyn Nets, but if you're ever going to move him and not, you know, feel a backlash from the fan base, I think this would be a pretty convenient time. Uh, What do you think about Tommy? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean... Beal has just said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go the whole way. And his agent comes back. Anytime there's a rumor, it doesn't matter who wants to start it. Bartlestein's mm-hmm. out there saying, shut this thing down. Um, and I think part of the reason why is that Beal has been very active in the D.C. community. And he also is basically you know, starting a family. Like he's had a couple of young children here recently. And so it would be a really annoying time to like have to pick up shop, find a new house, and move just within his own personal life. And if we're being honest, he's got a pretty good life, Michael. He's making like $30 million to go home in April every year. You know, it's like there are worse existences out there. And he's also kind of become the man there in D.C. It's his team, for better or worse, uh, at least until Wall comes back. And, um, you know, it's is he motivated, uh, you know, at, at all costs to go win a title and want to join up a super team? I mean, he's never kind of given that messaging. He's more been in that, you know, I'm happy here. I'm a, a loyal guy. And. I want to be here as long as possible. I think if you're in that situation, you know, the, the Wizards kind of answer to him a little bit. Uh, you know what I mean? He's not so good that he's going to get you some crazy, you know, Paul George-like package. I mean, I think if they were to get something like that, 
they would, you know, trade him against his will, right? Um, but I do think that when you're trying to build a culture, you've got young guys, it's, you know, first-time GM and everything else, uh, it's a tricky spot to be in. You know, trying to pull the trigger on a trade like that when he's made it clear he doesn't want to go, uh, that's that's difficult. You know, I, I guess I would wait that one out at least a year. Um, and I, they've also been saying, hey, we're going to give this a shot with Wall and Beal. And I don't like that idea at all. They're kind of stuck with Wall, you know, in his contract no matter what. Um, yeah. To me, if you do trade Beal, then it's just super awkward because Wall is like your only remaining veteran. And like, what's the point of that team? So I feel like there's a lot of conditions that are going to keep Beal there for one more year. No, that's fair. I I think that I agree, and with the what you said about them needing a Godfather offer to kind of pull the trigger on something like that. But who knows? I mean, just talking about the Rockets and bringing them up again, and just bringing up their desperation. Like if they, you know, were willing to throw in their next like five first round picks or something staggered over, uh, uh, you know, skipping a year every year to make it legal. Like I just, who knows, man, who knows? No, I hear you. I just think the Rockets are going to be sellers, not buyers. And I think that's tough. I think that, I mean, if any fr- uh, fan base needs to be sweating during this pandemic, it's got to be them, right? Because they were right there not that long ago. They, they have this weird transition season. Then all of a sudden, it's just clear that their owner is just completely up a creek from a financial standpoint. And I mean, you don't see Joe Lacob going to D.C., you know, asking for small business loans. You don't see, you know, Steve Ballmer, you know, doing that kind of a thing. So it's just it's, you know, by NBA standards, very extraordinary behavior uh, from their leader. And it would make <laughs> me nervous. Uh, just bottom line, if I was one of their fans. All right, let's uh, shift gears here. We got a question from Gary. He writes, "Greetings from England. I'm really enjoying the podcast. After the success of the Last Dance, I thought about a documentary I would like to see made: the San Antonio Spurs from the 1997 to 2020, drafting Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, five NBA championships, Kawhi Leonard leaving, and then maybe missing the playoffs for the first time in 20 years." I feel like not much is uh, really realized from the Spurs, so that that could make it a good series. It's the Popovich years and none of the ego, but there's some great stories to be told. So, Michael, I'm curious, like, I mean, this is sort of one of those holy grail ideas, right? It's the modern dynasty that nobody ever talks about. If you contrast the way the Lakers, you know, the Shaq and Kobe split or the the Kobe and Powell reunion, uh, you know, wind up how much attention that gets versus what we saw from Duncan for 20 years. Um, it's night and day, obviously. Um, I think a lot of people here in the United States, Gary would say, Oh, that's never going to happen. Popovich wouldn't let it happen. Duncan has no interest in self-promoting. Um, you know, just forget about this idea right off the top. But Michael, I'm curious, is there any way you could make Gary's dreams come true? What would need to happen, uh, for this project to get off the ground? I'm a little pessimistic. I mean, their entire ethos, the Spurs' entire ethos, was selflessness and the elimination of ego. So I just find it hard to believe, like, that Greg Popovich and Tim Duncan would sit around and talk about how great they were uh, for hours on end. But yeah, I mean, Popovich might sit around and talk about how great Duncan was, but Duncan and Duncan would probably like boringly defer credit to Popovich. I think the main problem mm-hmm. you've got here is Duncan. 
he is never going to like regale you with tales of like how much he hated Kevin Garnett or how how sweet it was to beat Shaq in the playoffs or like the kind of stuff that really was the gold from Jordan. Um, in that documentary, he's just never going to engage on that stuff, right? No, it's just not his personality. It's not his makeup. I mean, I would be really interested in, you know, going back to, I forget, what year was it when Duncan almost went to the Orlando Magic? He was very close. Doc Rivers has spoken about this when he was the head coach of Orlando at the time. But, like, going back... Was it 03? It could have been, yeah. It was It was a very... I mean, he was close to going. And, I mean, that's like one of the great all-time what-ifs that no one really talks about now. But hearing Duncan... It was discuss- 2000. Sorry about that. It, they got out of their contracts a little bit earlier back then. Okay, wonderful. So if he would, if he would go back and maybe talk about stuff like that, and um, if the organization discussed, uh, uh, I guess how they found Manu, how they found Tony, the confidence that they had in those guys, bringing them along, uh, it could be super interesting for sure. I'm with you. It would be. Uh, I can't think of honestly a more compelling. Uh, team that just you know has had so much success and been in the NBA consciousness for so long uh, that we know so little about relative to like you know the Lakers uh, with the Shaq and Kobe drama and all that. So I don't I don't know. I mean, there's obviously stories that have not been told, uh, really compelling ones. And if you were able to kind of drag that out of some key characters, then the doc would be tremendous. But I just don't think that that's possible. Well, Manu and Tony would be good, uh, especially Manu, because he's just like so honest and just, you know, wears his heart on his sleeve. And I think the the longer that he gets away from those Spurs glory days, the more mm-hmm. he's going to cherish those times, right? So the question is, can you build this whole thing around Manu? Tony's always been pretty interesting. He's got a little bit of a wry sense of humor. Um, and obviously he was there for every step of the way. So maybe he can be sort of like your, your Horace Grant type snitch in this program, you know, just sort of like get all the good details and you can kind of build the stories around. I don't know. Um, Maybe one way to do this, maybe one way to do this, Gary, would be to focus on the 2013 and 2014 years, losing in heartbreaking fashion and kind of perplexing fashion with with Popovich taking Duncan off the court uh, and not getting that key rebound that sets up the Ray Allen three and then coming back on the revenge mission and just like laying waste to the entire league in the playoffs, uh, you know, beating some really, really good teams handily in that 2014 playoff run. It's an amazing group with players from all over the world. Uh, you could get sort of like, it's kind of the peak Spurs from a globalization standpoint. You know, they've got guys just all these different countries represented on that team. Uh, their offense was at a very, very high level. Uh, the key strategic shift to, you know, having Boris Diaw playing, you know, big minutes, kind of stretching things out. Um, to me, if you focus on that two-year stretch, kept it to, you know pretty much to basketball and just pitched it as like Duncan's revenge mission against Le- LeBron, you could probably get enough to carry like a one or two hour movie. I just don't think you're ever going to get 10 hours from these guys and certainly not 10 hours for like a, well, you know, a, a yeah. general, a general audience. For sure. I, I, now that I think about this even more, what I would actually, and what I think everyone listening would really want to see and listen and, and, and observe is just the insight of what happened with Kawhi Leonard. Uh, and that is something that will obviously, that's impossible. That's just not going to happen for years and years and years. And the deterioration of that relationship and really what went into it. And if they could get like Kawhi Leonard to sit down and open up, which I mean, good luck, uh, then that would be the like the primo number one documentary 
possibility of the in, like the, the number one iteration of what we're discussing right now but that's just that's even more impossible than everything we've already kind of discussed here for sure we have another documentary insight from thaddeus our old friend he writes when you guys threw out that question about the player documentary that you really didn't want to see only one name came to my mind come on who's got the skills to be an all-time great the yes men around him to blindly help him make a documentary and a chip on his shoulder because he always feels like he's underappreciated. Guys, it's Kevin Durant. Can you imagine how whiny and attention craving that documentary would be? How many times would he say that people didn't get it or they never understood his greatness or that he didn't deal with the media and just wanted to hoop? Add in there, there'd be an entire episode of him complaining why it wasn't weak for him to leave his team to ride with one of the greatest of all time. Add in that he wasn't happy collecting rings with that same greatest team of all time. Add in that there'd be a Kyrie team up, courting Kyrie, talking to New York, and joining up in Brooklyn. We'd get like uh, 30 minutes of Kyrie quotes that you know he'd be happy to give. So maybe it would be ironically entertaining. Oh boy, oh boy. Um, Thaddeus, I feel like a lot of subliminal shots towards me in terms of all the arguments I've done on KD's behalf (laughs) over the years. So thanks for that, Michael. Could you salvage a Kevin Durant documentary? Is there any way you could see that actually being good? Or are you bowing to Thaddeus on this one? Is he right? I, I, I considered this a few weeks ago, and I just don't think there's much value in seeing Durant speak about himself because it's already such an oversaturated topic. I mean, he has his Twitter account, he has Instagram, he's done countless interviews in numerous forums, he has a TV show, uh, I guess the boardroom's on YouTube, I, th- I don't even, it's like, he... ESPN he, Plus. Sure, ESPN Plus. Um, so he's already kind of, he opens his mind and he lets people know what he's thinking constantly, and so... I just don't know what he could tell us that we don't already know uh, while his story is still being told. So it's kind of like him tirelessly attempting to correct a narrative that isn't likely to ever change. And that's just not very interesting to me. Yeah, I got you. I mean, I think, look, I mean, it's probably too late to, to redo the narratives on him. There was so much hope and promise for him from a narrative standpoint right up until the Oklahoma City decision. And he had so much goodwill. A documentary about those early Thunder teams would be an incredible time capsule. But I think everyone watching it would be like, wow, well, you know what happened afterwards, right? <laughs> Which is like, yeah, uh, they would hate him even more. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's so tough, man. I don't know. Maybe if enough time passed, people won't be so sick of the I'm misunderstood stuff that Thaddeus sounds like he is sick of. And there will be the opportunity to kind of paint a more complicated picture of a misunderstood athlete who was a real genius on the court but just never found a way to connect with people um or or couldn't i guess maintain it or or keep it lasting or was a victim of circumstances or poor decisions however you wanted to paint that movie uh to me don't rule it out forever thaddeus you might come back around i think kevin durant's game by the way is going to hold up great on the youtube tapes if you get to you know 2030 2035 and you're going back and watching kevin durant you know in his prime years I feel like there's been a real revival for guys like Tracy McGrady here and probably because he's on television. So he gets a little bit more attention and love and and all these people are coming back and kind of rewriting Tracy McGrady's history. I mean, Katie was just a better all around player flat out by a lot. He's going to go down as I would guess one of the top, you know, 10 or 15 players of all time. He had an incredibly exciting style. I think the basketball stuff is going to hold up great and people are going to say, wow, this guy was 
you know, a real modernizing element, you know, a player who's almost seven foot tall who can handle the ball. I think that stuff is, yeah, he's going to be remembered fondly for that. And his highlights are going to appeal to people for years and years and years. The personality stuff, though, is a, a legit challenge. And you might have to just sort of, you know, let time pass to heal those wounds. All right, we've got a question from Jesse. He writes, we've all enjoyed watching the characters on The Last Dance reflect upon their successes and failures with varying degrees of arrogance and humility. So you're going to have your choice here, Michael. Arrogance or humility, all right? Jesse asks us, take a moment to slip on your favorite Jordans and reflect on your own body of written and spoken work. Is there a sentence you wish you could take back, i.e. a hot take that ended up being completely frozen, or is there a sentence you are most proud of, i.e. a unique turn of phrase or a fitting metaphor? My favorite line of Ben's was a random observation from a few years ago. He described a player who lacked defensive acumen as appearing more lost than a four-year-old in a sleeping bag. I don't know why that one line stayed with me, but it still makes me chuckle to this day. Jesse, thank you for sending that in. It was very nice of you to add that as a postscript. I don't remember saying that, Michael, but it sounds like something I would say, and I appreciate him uh, bringing back the greatest hit. So let me know. Would you prefer to be arrogant, humble, or both? Do you have a favorite or a least favorite? Uh, I'm First of all, I'm devastated that you don't remember saying that, and I kind of don't believe you because I, be, I, I just think that you, you, you know who it was about and you just don't want to call them out again because clearly you, you were taking shots. I'm always taking shots, Michael. That's the thing. I mean, you, you do this long enough, they just come out sideways sometimes. You're not even aware. You know, the gun just goes off. What can I say? Um, I, I really honestly don't remember. Do you remember who I said it about? Is that what you're trying to say? No, I don't. I, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, contenders that would pop to the top of my head, but I, I, I don't know. I did not ever hear you say that. It is a great line, though, I, I will well, say. My favorite... Um, phrase that I can remember just offhand that I go back back to quite a bit is a similar vein where it's another you know guy struggling defensively so Nikola Jokic I you know a few years he was trying to uh, go he was trying to defend in space during the playoffs and really struggling with it and I described him as basically um, having severed legs and wearing ice skates so I, the phrase I used was he looks like he's on stu- he's stumps on skates uh, when he gets out you know trying to defend in space <laughs> And that image of him just like bumbling around and uh, and like how painful that would be if you were in stumps on skates. And I think it's the the alliteration that makes it stick with me too, Michael. That one I am kind of proud of. Probably shouldn't be. It's a little bit disgusting now that I'm really breaking it down. But it's, it's also just quick and you know exactly what it's, you know, descriptive. It's visual. You know what I mean if I say a player is in stumps on skates out there defending in space. So that's one that I like. Do you have any favorite lines? Uh, I mean, it's, you don't want to like go back and kind of pat yourself on the back too much. I just, I did write something very recently, uh, a piece for GQ about, uh, Bill Russell's, uh, autobiography, Second Wind. And I had a line in there that I did like a lot. So I'm just going to reread it on the pod because, uh, I was asked to, um, Writing as a stern, skeptical misanthrope, more stubborn than an oak tree getting yanked from the ground, Russell also treats self-discovery as the roadmap to reinvention. That I, I like that line. And uh, it was like me trying to uh, sum up. I mean, I, I had, in thinking about Russell, uh, it, like he just kind of conjures big like redwood oak trees uh that are just really difficult to to move that are 
have been around forever that are super stubborn. So to kind of, I, I'm like, I don't even know how to like describe myself in the thought process of writing out loud, but I'm glad that it came out the way that it did. Yeah, you did better on page than you did on the pod, Mike, gotta say. <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> no, look, I mean, we're not really, uh, we haven't had as much time to practice our self-promotion, you know, right? As guys like Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen or Phil Jackson, we haven't necessarily honed our Zen Buddhism philosophies. It was a great line and also a great piece. Um, I really enjoyed the contrast you drew, uh, you drew between Bill Russell's self-reflection, this idea that he's going to dig inside and, you know, in, in this book that you've read and expose himself in ways that Michael Jordan was just never, ever going to do. It's like all of the calculation um, that was baked into Jordan's project is just apparently uh, non-existent in that book. It made me want to read the book for sure. And people should start with your piece. Uh, no question. It was very well written. Uh, and that line jumped out to me as a guy who happens to hug trees regularly, Michael, and really <laughs> enjoys trees. Any, uh, you know, tree uh, illusion uh, catches my interest. All right. We got to flip this around because you're so uncomfortable um, patting yourself on the back, Michael. So let's let's have a little humble pie here. Um, no more arrogance. What do you say? What's the biggest regret of your writing career? Do you have one, a, a line that you wish you could take back? I've I've discussed this on the pod before. Um, I mean, right off the top, I don't I don't really believe in regrets just as a writer because. Like, we're going to take shots. Well, and are, are you like a character on the real world? I mean, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I try to do is go outside of the... Uh, there's just all these different narratives that are in place. And what I like to do is to try to, like, carve my own lane. And so I'm going to be wrong a lot because a lot of the, the common narratives are common narratives because they are correct. And so when you try to deviate, you kind of get... You, you stumble a little bit. And so uh, the one time that I, that really pops out to me is just this piece I wrote about Steph Curry that I've already mentioned on the pod before. So if you've already listened to it, I apologize. But uh, basically, I wrote a piece uh, a couple years ago saying that or declaring that Steph Curry was in decline. And he is still incredible. Um, and I guess you could parse whether or not he is as good today or as good last season as he was three years ago or whatever. But like the backlash to that piece, I feel like was deserved. And even though I was fair in what I was trying to say and articulate, it came across as me just like using numbers to form this argument that really didn't even need to be made. So that's like the biggest uh, quote unquote regret that I've had. Well, look, I think you might be the first person who's ever been ratioed to say that they deserved it, Michael. I think that is you know, just the <laughs> the pinnacle of, of being humble. I'm really, really impressed by that. I, I just want to say with regard to this question, Jesse, you asking it really got me thinking because bottom line, we make hundreds of predictions on this show over the course of a year. Um, you know, if anybody's actually doing better than 50-50, I'd be shocked, right? I mean, that's just kind of the nature the nature of the beast. Um, but as human beings, we're always going to remember our own hits and forget our own misses, right? And so what's great about the Open Floor Globe is that you know, they could always you know keep us honest and say, oh, you screwed this up, you screwed that up, why are you over overlooking... Uh, you know, this player or, or that player, and, you know, this guy's going to prove you wrong. If you didn't have that, if you did just get yourself into a bubble where you're only remembering your own hits, it would absolutely distort things and it would allow you to write your own um, version of history. 
And so uh, I think that this is what some people are pushing back with on the documentary is that maybe those critics' voices weren't heard loudly enough, Michael. And I think it's a really valid point because, you know, ultimately, like, as I was thinking about this question, it's a lot easier for me to remember the moments that made me happy or chuckle, like the stumps on skates thing or other jokes along the way, or, oh, yeah, I got DeMar DeRozan in that battle, right? But of course, there's been a million predictions that were completely wrong. Uh, never gave the Raptors a chance last year, all the way right down to the very end. Uh, of winning the title. Uh, And I think in general, I'm pretty conservative with my predictions. Like I don't make, you know, wild outlandish, like outside the box uh, title picks. I usually kind of stick to the script on MVPs and everything else, but I'm pretty sure I've picked the wrong MVP like the last six years. I don't think I've gotten MVP once. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I really don't think I've gotten MVP right once, Michael. It's pretty bad. Um, yeah, I wait, would have wait, to... wait, wait, wait. Can we... Okay, we got to stop here. You didn't pick Giannis to win MVP? Um, no, last year? No, I didn't. Um, I forget who I even picked. Uh, I have to go back and, and check the record, but no. Tatum? Um, no, not Tatum. That's a good one <laughs> for people to rub in our face because we're just roasting Tatum from Summer League, and he's come back with a vengeance. So maybe I that's mean... my bi- my biggest regret is I do try to like not judge people too early and not try to judge them on their best day or their worst day. And there's been a few mm-hmm. from Summer League. It's just like brutal. At the same time, there's been other, you know, guys like Fultz who got like 15 second chances from everybody in the media. And it was just killing me that nobody would just kind of speak honestly about him. I caught some flack for how direct I was for saying that he shouldn't get to wear a chain with his jersey number if he never actually played because it's just like, what does that number even represent? People said that was insensitive. And I understand I caught a lot of heat for that. I was right on that one, but, you know, maybe right on the merits and wrong. Uh, you know, wrong from a human standpoint. But look, we could do this all day. I think the bigger takeaway here, Jesse, is that, look, everybody's right. Everybody's wrong. It's always important to uh, remember that. And it's also important to acknowledge that any of us individually are going to warp our own story if we're allowed to tell it. And that's a major takeaway, not only from this podcast, um, in terms of your role as an audience for keeping us honest, but also uh, for your role as a viewer in watching any documentary to make sure that you feel like you're getting uh, a fair story all the way around. All right, we got another question here from Mark in Montreal. He writes, losing in 1999 might have been the fire that would have given Michael Jordan motivation for the next two to three years. Think about it. When he lost in 95, it brought him back with a new mission. But losing in 99 could have done the same thing. Yes, Jerry Krause might have had to find a new rebounder, a new coach, or a young replacement for Pippen. Well, that's a, a big uh, a big ask there, Mark. Uh, but he, he goes on to write, that is what a GM is supposed to do anyway. What you don't do is let the GOAT walk away when he still wanted to play. That is just wrong. And to all the people who say he should have quit with that storybook ending, I say let the man himself decide. It's not up to the fans or pundits to tell the greats when to walk away. If Jordan had stayed in shape and had not taken two to three years off, he would have he would have been capable of playing at a high level for the next two to four years easily. I know everyone talks about how Michael hated to lose, but he actually was a pretty good loser in those series against the Pistons. He shook hands after the losses and gave them credit. I think what he really would have wanted was to stay in shape to test himself against the wave of young talent, even if his team wasn't up to the dynastic summits of the past. Um, so, uh, Michael, I guess I'm curious here. Jordan explains why he's mad at Kraus. He said during the season he wouldn't return without Phil. Phil clearly wanted out, as we've described, and there was really no scenario where he was going to come back. And so that left Jordan without any other plan. I guess to push back against Mark's argument in this email, 
Doesn't MJ deserve kind of a lot of the blame here for how it ended, or at least a, a portion of it? If it was as simple as him wanting to play, he could have surveyed his options and kept a more open mind. But by boxing him into this idea of I'm not playing without Phil and never really considering playing anywhere else besides Chicago, didn't he kind of just shoot the hostage? Like, wasn't this whole thing done before he even had enough time to regret it? I guess so. I mean, the so it's just it's tough to go back and kind of judge Jordan from that era and compare it to you know, player empowerment and what we're seeing now. And so if Jordan was obsessed with winning titles, which I'm sure he was, and Chicago just was not the situation for him. And, you know, we've talked about this in previous episodes about where he could have gone to win. Like, I don't know how he could have attracted players to play with him or if he even had the types of relationships with guys with his contemporaries uh, to to like build a super team on the fly. I, I just don't know what how like what the permutations would have been at a time like that. But I, I get what you're saying for sure. And yeah, publicly I saying just, that you don't want to play for Phil, anyone but Phil is not the greatest, smartest decision. Right. Like you're a guy who has all this leverage. You're bigger than the sport. You're bigger than your team. Obviously, you don't want to leave. But like if things are that dire, at some point you have to walk away. Right. Like haven't you ever been in that situation like in life, like whether it's a negotiation or, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, it's like your photography class when you were in high school, Michael, where you're just like enough is enough. Right. I'm out. I'm going to go do journalism like I was the Jordan of that photography class. Right. And so that's kind of what I'm saying is like this guy had. <laughs> an unbelievable amount of leverage and there are all these other teams out there um certainly anyone would have killed to have jordan why you basically you know have this stare down uh you know playing chicken with kraus who's you know kind of irrational as the emailer described and allow that to dictate the end of your career if you really still wanted to play uh you know you could have found another way and i think ultimately we need to put that back on jordan it's not just a, a bulls thing um, if it was all about keeping his career going no matter what, he would have found another way. And by the way, he did because he played for the Wizards a few years later. And that was a total disaster. But like maybe maybe Jordan is uh, misremembering. I mean, the Jordan of today is misremembering how he felt at the time. Maybe he wanted to walk away. And I, like, who knows? Like, I'm sure there's a lot of different things that Jordan exaggerated or... Uh, was not willing to be 100% forthcoming about in those present-day interviews during The Last Dance that kind of try to twist the narrative of of what actually happened 22 years ago. For sure. He probably just forgot how tired he was, man. I mean, that happens to me, too. Like, when you're in the moment and you're physically exhausted and, like, you know, just the idea of, you know, the next step is just so difficult to even imagine and you tap out. And then like, you know, two years later, you've got your energy back. You're like, wow, like, why did I tap out? I could do this. This is, you know, it's, it is a, one of those things where time kind of changes perspective. Hey, Michael, we've got a bunch more awesome questions that we didn't get to. So we're going to bring those back uh, later this week, guys. I also want to announce we have an extra bonus episode coming to you this week. Uh, it's an interview I did with author and writer Jack McCallum. He's got a new podcast series called The Dream Team Tapes, which are a really fun behind-the-scenes look with exclusive interviews, guys like Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. The interviews were done for Jack's book about the Dream Team you know, almost a decade ago now, uh, but the audio is really fun. You're going to he hear these guys in their own words. They're speaking very candidly, and they kind of go through the major steps 
of that uh, run from the Dream Team, I asked Jack about uh, the Tournament of Americas, which happened to take place in Portland, Oregon. He had some great uh, behind-the-scenes insight on that uh, part of the process, and of course, the famous practice in Monte Carlo. Some of the uh, you know the other uh, just personality conflicts that were developing a little bit, and most fun of all, Michael, I asked him about Christian Leitner and how weird it must have been to be <laughs> Leitner on that team, and he had some uh, interesting things to say there too. So, guys, check that podcast out. It will be released uh, this week, I believe, Thursday. Michael and I will be back on Friday. Um, All right, Michael, they can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver, on Twitter at Ben Golliver. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.